we are in the book of James, and God willing, we will finish it tonight. So last time we were in chapter 4, and the first, probably two-thirds of chapter 4, is talking about quarrels within the body, and talking about uh, what causes fights and so forth, not having what you want, and the reason for that, of course, is that you're not paying attention to what God wants, that you're following your flesh. So, got all the way down through verse 10. That was, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And the thing we talked about there is, resisting the devil has a condition that will cause him to flee, and that condition is that you have submitted yourself to God. So if you are, in fact, not submitted to God, you can resist the devil all you want, but it won't make any difference because the devil will ignore you. So that takes us now to verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? That requires a little bit of unpacking. As I have been saying every time, and it's worth repeating this time, James is writing to Hebrews. So he's writing to people who have a background in Torah and Tanakh. Paul has got the Gentile franchise. So when Paul's writing letters, he's writing to people who don't have any background in Scripture. So he's got to come at his audience differently than James does. James can assume that he's talking to people who know the scriptures. In the United States today, there's lots of nominal Christians. For example, I was having breakfast this morning, and the guys I was having breakfast with are stronger than nominal Christians. But they're not Bible scholars. They're just Episcopalians, go to church on Sunday, and so forth. And so I was talking about Pharaoh, and I was saying, well, you, you know the incident where Moses and Aaron come in, and they throw their rods down, and they turn into snakes. And, oh, yeah, right. We know that incident. So when talking to them, I can assume that they have a great deal of background in the Bible. And James can assume the same thing about his audience. So he says a lot of things shorthandedly that Paul wouldn't be able to get away with, because Paul's audience has no background in Scripture. So, what he's doing is, he is saying the same thing that Yeshua is saying, for example, in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, Yeshua says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. One of the things that has happened in our society is, you can't judge me. That has come out of the church and permeated the popular society. So there are lots of people who have never darkened the inside of a church door that will say, you can't judge me, certainly realizing where it comes from. But the idea is, you pinch-nosed, narrow-minded Christians who are looking at me over the tops of your glasses, you have no right to judge me. 
your Bible says so. Neither James nor Yeshua is saying that. What he's talking about is hypocrisy, which is to say using a different standard on your brother than you apply to yourself. So there's nothing in either James or Yeshua or Proverbs that says you can't look at behavior and compare behavior to what God says in his Torah and make a judgment about behavior. There's absolutely nothing whatsoever wrong with that because if there were something wrong with that, you literally would not be able to have a functioning society because you would have what we have now. Everybody is his own standard. And that's not what is being said here. What is being talked about is hypocrisy. So using one standard for your neighbor that you do not apply to yourself. That's the problem. And what James is saying in a slightly different way is if you are judging your neighbor, and I will put parentheses in there hypocritically, if you are judging your neighbor hypocritically, what you have done is you have become a judge and you are in fact judging the law. And you are saying the law applies to my neighbor, but that same law doesn't then apply to me. So his riff is the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And I am assuming law here means Torah. I don't know that because this is written in Greek. And so what the Torah talks about is it speaks against Lashon Hara, the evil tongue. You don't speak in a way to damage your brother unless your brother is being wicked. So if your brother is behaving in a way that is wicked, you certainly may speak against him. But gossip and murmuring among people, the Torah forbids that because it tears down a society. One of the things we talk about here in this congregation is we speak against Lashon Hara. You don't want to speak against your brother and the defense that what you're saying is true is not a defense. Some of the most damaging speech you can make about your brother is true. Because there are things that all of us do that we would really rather that everybody didn't know about. So if you come in and you start speaking against your brother and you use the defense, but it's true, you are still probably speaking Lashon Hurrah. And when I say probably, I'm being very careful here. Because if your brother's behavior is in fact injuring you or injuring someone else, as in you and he are in business together and I just happen to know that you've been taking money out of the till and I really need to tell him because you're cheating him. That's not Lashon Hurrah. That is protecting your neighbor. Lashon Hurrah damages three people. It damages the one who is spoken about, it damages the speaker, and it damages the one who's listening to it. All three people in that transaction get damaged. My opinion is most Lashon Hara is thoughtless. Most people don't go out with the intention of damaging somebody else. It's just thoughtless. And so if you're in the presence of somebody who is speaking thoughtlessly in a way that diminishes somebody else in the group's context, you say, this is a conversation I don't want to participate in and leave. And very often the person will get the message at that point. Oh, I was being thoughtless. Lashon Hara is speech, either true or not, doesn't matter, 
which serves to tear somebody else down in the eyes of the community. And if you have somebody in your community that goes around and pedals Lashawn Hurrah, you can tear up a community, which is why it's important that people who hear such things stop it. I don't want to be part of this conversation. The person then, one hopes, will get the word and adjust his speech. So that's the first thing that's being talked about here. And then the second thing that's being talked about here is hypocritical judgment, which is to say, I am judging your behavior by a different standard than I am applying to myself. And in either case, those are forbidden. And if I'm doing that, what I'm saying is the Torah that forbids both of those things is not true. I'm saying my opinion is above the Torah, which forbids both of those practices. And so in that sense, I am judging the law. That's what's being spoken about here. There's sort of been four subjects in chapter four here. One is this idea of strife within the community based on not having the things of this world. And he goes into reasons why there is covetousness and anger and all that kind of stuff. Then the next one is, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Resist the devil and he will flee, which is yet another subject. And then this next one here is, how do you then judge your brother? Judge in quotes. Uh, And the idea there is, if you feel it necessary to judge your brother, you must do so in an impartial way and not hypocritically. So now we're switching subject yet again. And what we're talking about here is boastfulness, I would say. So now verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So what we're talking about here is boasting and arrogance. Somebody stands up and says, I've got this deal on the fire and I'm going to make X number of dollars and then I'm going to take that money and I'm going to parlay it into this and building these castles in the air of things off in the future. And what it bespeaks is a lack of humility. And all of this, by the way, is speaking in terms of humility. So clear back when we were talking about strife, one of the specifics against strife is humility. We talked in terms of Malachi, which is, you know, what does the Lord require of you, O man? But uh, love mercy, do justice, and walk humbly before your God. So the idea of humility here is a thread that's running all the way through James. And again, his audience knows this. So you've all read Proverbs. Uh, You all know that Proverbs speaks very highly of humility. It speaks very highly that a wise man doesn't tell everybody all he knows, that a wise man speaks sparingly and, and doesn't brag and doesn't boast. This is all laced through Proverbs. So 
James, as he writes, can sort of dip in there and mention humility and back out without making it a big deal because his audience understands the literature and the concept. Chapter 5. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, I'm going to read all the way through verse 6 because in order to understand this, You've got to get through verse 6 because he does his qualifiers at the end. So, come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be the evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold... The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So what we're talking about is rich people who got that way unjustly. We are not talking about all rich people because one of the things that God promises in Deuteronomy to motivate us is if you walk according to Torah and you walk with me, your flocks and herds will increase. You will have bumper crops. All the nations around you will say, wow, what nation has such wise laws? Wow, their God's really taken care of them. And that's all evident in the physical abundance that you walk in. So God in Deuteronomy uses the prospect of wealth and physical abundance to indicate that those who walk with him walk in blessing, and he uses it to motivate. In other words, walk with me, taste and see that the Lord is good. In the Psalms, right? So the idea here is, Do what God asks you to do, walk with him, behave the way he says to behave, and you will be blessed bountifully. So the problem here is not wealth. And if you just read that first sentence in chapter 5, it really sounds like he's speaking against wealth, and that's not what's happening. What he's speaking against is people who get their wealth by oppressing others. And what he's saying in that is, oh, by the way, If that is how you got your wealth, then the wealth that you got will corrode. Your silver and gold will rot, which is to say the universe will take back the stuff that you have gotten by fraud. One of the things that I've said in the past is God's universe tends toward justice. And it's slow. Your gold rotting and stuff like that is something that happens after you have amassed a lot of wealth. And you think, wow, I'm set. Things are going well. I've got all this wealth. Things are great. And what will happen slowly is that wealth will corrode and melt away because God's universe always balances. Certainly it can happen abruptly. But that isn't the way to bet. The way to bet is that it will happen more slowly. The moths will eat your wool and rust will consume your gold. Now, gold isn't supposed to rust. 
what the unjustly wealthy have done is Torah says a poor laborer you pay on the day that he finishes the work. You've got a contractor who is you know, working on contract, you pay according to the whatever the contract is. But the idea is you, you go into town one day, need more laborers, find somebody that's standing there in front of Home Depot with his hands in his pockets and say, do you need work? You bet, I need work. The deal there is at the end of the day, you pay him on the spot. And what this guy has done is he's withheld the wages and he hasn't paid them on the spot. And he's done something like he's got their wages invested and he's making money on interest and stuff and he delays paying them for seven. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So now we have been talking earlier about hypocritical judgments in the community. But there is a judge who is coming who is not hypocritical. What he's saying is the Messiah is coming and your job is to wait patiently until he gets here because what he's doing, the Messiah, is he is waiting for the fruits of the earth to be ripe. So be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And I will suggest, parenthesis, that one of the things that the Lord is waiting for is the harvest to be ready. And that's, of course, it talks about that in Revelation. Where you have the angels with the sharp sickles and so forth. Let me back up a second. I have said parenthetically that God is waiting for the harvest. What James is saying here is you are part of the harvest and you need to wait patiently also until you are ripe. You being humanity. So what he's saying is we have prophets and he uses Job as an example who have gone through tremendous ups and downs. One of everybody's favorite passages in Job is I know that my Redeemer lives and in the end I will see him in the flesh. So Job is patiently waiting for his Redeemer and of course Job died before the second coming of Yeshua, which is yet future to us. And the whole point is, Job was very patient. Well, Job whined a lot. One of the things I find really encouraging about Job is it's okay to whine. Job spends a lot of time whining. And at the end of the day, God sort of gently chastises him, far more gently than he chastises his three friends. But Job spends a lot of time whining. The point here he's making is, the Messiah is going to come. And until then, like he is patiently waiting for the harvest, you need to be patiently waiting also. And you need to use the prophets who went through some really rough times as your example and your encouragement. 
as I've said in the past, being one of God's prophets is really tough duty. I don't know of any of them that had an easy life. You know, the relationship between prophets and the kings of Israel was always tense. If a king didn't like the prophecy he got, he didn't have any problem taking the prophet out and having him beaten until he got a better prophecy. They threw Jeremiah in jail. I don't like your prophecies. Ahab is trying to get his hot little hands on Elijah. And Elijah spends a whole lot of time evading Ahab because he knows when Ahab gets his hands on him, Ahab is going to treat him very roughly. And say, being a prophet's tough duty. Onward. So now I'm all the way down to verse 12, maybe. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, that you may not fall under condemnation. Straight out of Proverbs. God in Deuteronomy says to swear by the name of the Lord, right? That's what you will do your oaths by. And what Proverbs says is, yeah, 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 I know what the scripture says, but anytime you take an oath, you have just stepped into really dangerous territory because God will require that oath of you. So it's really much more prudent never to take an oath. That way you don't get in trouble with God. And that's what James is saying. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. This is obviously one of the things that we stand on in this church. It's one of the reasons we have the elders standing down at the end of the hall at the end of every service, is if someone needs prayer, especially for healing and stuff, we have elders there who will anoint him with oil and pray. And this is the scripture that we use as our basis for that. Verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. There's an alternative translation of that. Or the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. I will, quite frankly, not claim to be righteous. So if you come in and have me lay hands on you, you're just going to have to take what I've got. It's always a risk confessing your sins. What we're talking about here is a community where people get together and they're trying to uphold one another and they're trying to build one another up spiritually. This is one of the things that the Catholic Church has almost right. Not necessarily the office of a priest, but the fact that there is somebody in the church that you can safely go to and confess your sins. I mean, beyond that, the other stuff that the Catholic Church does with all that, I'm not in agreement with. The idea of teshuva before Mount before is going out and trying to correct the damage that you have done in the past year. And figuring out how to do that correction is sometimes difficult. But what he's talking about here is the idea that you have somebody that you can talk to about it. And certainly in the prayer room, what gets said in the prayer room stays in the prayer room. But the other part of that is if you have got something that is on your soul, 
that will also affect physical healing. If you're not right about something and it's bothering you, it will affect your physical body. One of the things that happens in the prayer room frequently is deliverance. It will become obvious that we're dealing with some kind of an unclean spirit somewhere. When we run that off, very often, the physical problems go away. I've seen that happen lots of times. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He's talking about Elijah's prayers being effective. Verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The idea here is being in community and you've got to take that and you've got to bounce it back up against don't judge. Because if you take don't judge as don't notice sinful behavior, then you are never going to be able to take somebody who's wandered off and bring him back. So the idea about not judging, as I said 36 times when we were back up there, is hypocrisy. That's what we're talking about. That We are not talking about closing your eyes and stopping up your ears and walking through the world as if everyone is righteous, because we are not. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.